I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. I don't know about you, but I am ready for the weekend. Father's Day, Juneteenth, and just a whole lot of grilling. But before you head out the door, we got to catch you up on the week's top stories happening in our area. Chicago's first casino gets a crucial go-ahead. Illinois Gaming Board has given Bally Chicago the green light to open a temporary casino right in the River North neighborhood. The temporary gambling house will be located at the historic Medina Temple. The number of abortion patients in Illinois is trending up since the end of Roe v. Wade a year ago. And Parenthood of Illinois says they have seen a more than 50% growth in the number of abortion patients. And Illinois moves to stop book bans in their tracks. The battle over what books should be in public schools and libraries may be over, at least in the state of Illinois, because the state is the first to ban banning books. And those are just a few of the stories that we want to tackle. Here to help us make sense of the news is David Grising, president of the Better Government Association. Brandis Friedman, co-anchor and correspondent of WTTW's Chicago Tonight. And Natalie Moore, editor of WBEZ's Race, Class and Communities Desk. All right, let's start with the big casino news. The Illinois Gaming Board unanimously approved Bally's temporary casino at Medina Temple in downtown Chicago on Wabash Avenue. Now, this sets the stage for Chicago's first casino this summer. Right, Brandis? It is. And I think the plan is that Bally's and the city agreed that this would be the temporary casino while the big mega mm-hmm. behemoth thing is going to be built uh, in that separate location. And I think I think uh, the the permanent casino with all of its rooms and resorts and, and event venues and all of that is not going to be available or ready until at, at least 26 if I'm if I'm remembering oh, wow. that correctly, yeah. yeah. So uh, it's and a so while the, off. Yeah. So the temporary one is going to go in River North at the Medina Temple. And I mean, David, this has taken years and efforts by several mayors to even get to this point. What's been the holdup? Why has it taken the city this long to get a casino? Well, there was for a long time resistance to a downtown casino, um, and uh, on top of that, there wasn't as strong a perceived need of the financial need for one. Uh, the 26 number is one thing. The real question is when will we see a financial payoff from this? And the city's projection of $246 million in tax revenue won't come good until about 2032 if things go as well as everybody expects mm. or hopes, I should say. And so uh, we've switched from wariness about gambling. It's a lot like cannabis, wariness about cannabis, wariness about gambling to Gosh, bring it on because we need the money to solve our budget and pension yeah. problems. Not only the Medina Temple is going to serve as the, the temporary location, as we mentioned. Do you think it's a good one for a casino? It's empty. <laughs> <laughs> it's available. It's um, available. <laughs> you know, I, I believe that they want a temporary casino so they could start getting some of that revenue. <laughs> so they don't have to wait as as long as as twenty twenty six, that casino money. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough. I remember going to the circus at wasn't Medi- the bozo the clown Temple. at there? No, that was at WGN. Right, Studios, right, right, right. But they used to have a visiting circus <laughs> once in a while. Uh, that facility can be a good venue for the use that they're talking about. Um, so it it could work. And they just again they want to get the money going. They can't wait a few more years. Yeah. Uh, to start the gambling. I love the juxtaposition of going from a temple to a casino as well. From the name Medina <laughs> Temple to I a know, casino. I know. And it also I think speaks to where Chicago is as far as a casino. I used to be a reporter in Detroit twenty years ago, and the casinos had been there for a few years, and there were three of them. 
And it was seen as we have to have this. And those three casinos were generating 20 years ago, about $100 million a year. Wow. And that was seen as, well, you know, just given the economic climate of Detroit, that if you don't have these casinos, what do you have? Yeah. And so a city like Chicago and other cities have felt that they didn't need more, at least the public perception also. But now we're in a place that, you know, it's taken decades, I think, for public sentiment, for the financial realities to to come in yeah. and pensions. Another interesting, I'm glad you mentioned Detroit because the, there's a lot of concern about the impact a casino has and sort of the this civic life. And yeah. I think the casinos have, they've not ruined Detroit. They're sort no. of a benefit. One of the problems with casinos is that, is that the people go in and they just don't come up, come out. They go in, they gamble, et cetera. It's not the sort of thing like a sports venue that creates, say, a bar district around it like at Wrigley Field. I see. It's It really, the, the economic value is created within the walls of that complex. And not necessarily leaving and spending anywhere else. Yeah, it's absolutely. staying inside. I, so, think the, I think the, the other concern is, are there too many casinos? Like, what is that going? I mean, people go to Northwest Indiana, and those casinos have concerts. And then you go a little bit farther, mm-hmm. and you're in Four Winds, Michigan. You can go to Riverboats. But those you aren't can Illinois. Go, right, but I'm just saying the, the proximity. Right. So the other issue has been, does Chicago need a casino? Is it just going to take money from other casinos that are drivable? Nearby. Right. Yeah. Or is it creating more opportunity or will it close those casinos and what will those communities? I mean, not close, but will it diminish? So I think the the larger question is how many casinos is too many? And also economic development. There was a, we, the city looked at, say, the old Michael Reese spot. Mm-hmm. Mayor Lightfoot tried to explore other options ended up kind of giving up and going to this downtown casino because all of the studies show that a lot of your money is made from uh, convention visitors and others. True. And so it was a competing interest of looking for equitable economic development and instead giving up and saying, okay, let's just put it downtown. Well, sticking with this gaming world, Chicago businessman James Weiss was found guilty of bribing two state legislators to pass a bill that would help his sweepstakes gaming company. So, Brandis, this is the second verdict in less than two months at the Dirksen Federal Courthouse on, of course, separate bribery schemes at the Illinois Capitol. Yeah, and this one is, um, I think, you know, a lot of the political watchers and political reporters in town are just kind of fascinated by this one um, because James Weiss is also the son-in-law um, of for, of Joe Berrios. Uh, what, remind me what his position was when former he was Cook assessor. Cook former Cook assessor, County Assessor. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so it involves uh, a couple of uh, a couple of state legislators as well. Um, one of whom wore a wire. Apparently, there's a ghost woman that Weiss reportedly said that yeah, I had a phone call, a phone conversation with her, and apparently she didn't actually exist. Um, and so yeah, <laughs> so this one has been kind of fascinating. I think there were some tapes that were played in court, um, but yeah, it was a fairly fairly short trial, I guess, only about a week long. Um, And he was found guilty on seven counts of bribery, wire fraud, mail fraud, and making false statements. I mean, does this sum up Springfield politics to you, Natalie? His attorney said this in his closing remarks to the jury. He said, quote, this is a dirty place where the rules seem to be gray, where a contribution can be considered a bribe, a bribe, a contribution, end quote. 
you know, not to <laughs> go back to my Detroit days, but <laughs> I remember someone saying, you know, there's a fine line between quid pro quo and corruption. And I mean, we've had a cor- quite the corruption season. <laughs> corruption <laughs> in, season. In Isn't it always corruption season in Illinois? <laughs> it is. It's, I mean, between this and then the comet, like, you know, I the, mean, you know, you open up the papers. It's like, I've been here two another years tri- and I've seen a lot. So I can imagine <laughs> the rest of you. <laughs> yeah. So I think that quote does summarize <laughs> to an extent the place that we live in. What do you think, David? Just Springfield politics well, doing its wh- thing? The most interesting bit of testimony in in the trial that I've learned was um, Terry Link, the former uh, state senator uh, who was wearing the wire for the fads. And they coached him to kind of walk up to the line without entrapping uh, Weiss. And he 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 just asked the simple question, what's in it for me? And basically the the envelope full of cash came out. And and so – that's where the fine line is drawn. When mm-hmm. somebody says, what's in it for me? And somebody hands you a $2,500 per month consulting agreement. Yeah. And so it, it, um, the evidence seemed pretty clear in the, the interviews that have been done with some of the jurors. They were not mystified by this at all. They felt this clearly was corruption. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And we're going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with David Grising of the Better Government Association, Brandis Friedman with WTTW and WBEZ's Natalie Moore. A reminder, you can now watch us break down the news on WBEZ's Facebook and YouTube pages. You can also leave us a comment or question on any of those platforms or talk to us in the YouTube chat box, and we'll share those thoughts on air. All right, over to the Johnson administration, shall we? Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson approved more than $10 million to extend the city's contract with ShotSpotter. That's the the system that detects gunfire and then alerts police. But this is something that Johnson actually vowed to do away with when he was on the campaign trail. So what happened there, Brandis? I think it, I think it was a technicality. I think uh, he changed his mind. He, <laughs> I don't think so. I think um, is, and I'm a little bit confused on this as well. And I've read about it. and I'm like, huh. So I think Mayor Lightfoot had previously extended uh, the end date for this contract. It was supposed to have been, I think, in August. She pushed it back to February. Um, and since that happened on her watch, I think um, I think it had to be pushed through. Um, even though the new mayor has been elected and is in office. Um, and I, I, it's not like you can kind of roll that back and say, I'd like my $10 million back, please. Um, yeah. And so I, I think uh, his team, though, has said that they're they're planning to look at, you know, sort of the, the process through which something like this um, goes down because he did not change his mind, uh, but it's I don't think he could get out of it. I don't think he could back out of it. Well, especially when the auto pen took over. That, that's the most mystifying part of this whole thing is that a $10 million contract was signed by a machine without anybody in the mayor's office apparently being aware of it. And the, the, and the, they've uh, been, Jason Lee, his senior policy advisor, has been very upfront and saying, hey, wait, this is a problem. We're going to fix that. Uh, but it did, did put Brandon Johnson in a tough spot because he was so critical of ShotSpotter during the campaign on his campaign website. He basically promised yeah. to eliminate that contract. He blamed it for the death of Adam Toledo, uh, that a false shot spotter alert led the cops, arms up. The trouble with that thing is that when the cops respond to it, they go into these neighborhoods with on a high alert. Because, with the expectation right. that, that shots are going to be fired mm. because this machine has told them that they have. Yeah, whereas studies of the technology have shown that in only 10% of the cases or fewer is it actually a gunshot. 
And so that's why Johnson was such a critic of it. And now his staff is saying, well, he's open-minded to a further extension of the contract. Yeah, uh, this this technology sure has a bad rep in, yeah. in Chicago. Well, it does in Chicago, and also cities nationwide are starting to cancel. Atlanta, New Orleans, uh, about a dozen or so cities. Illinois Answers Project, our newsroom, looked into this, and and uh, the there boom is off concerns. the rose on Shotspotter. Yeah, well, and, and Shotspotter, which has changed its name to Sound Thinking, you know, it's a private it's a private company, right? So they haven't been, you know, very sharing about. Um, about their information. Any of this research and data, you know, people, you know, organizations have had to do it on their own. Um, I think, you know, a couple of state agencies have or city agencies have looked into it as well and found that, you know, like you said, like not a lot of the alerts that come from ShotSpotter actually lead to an actionable uh, a crime mm-hmm. or actual gunfire that's been fired. And the machine is supposed to, or the technology is supposed to be able to decipher between like a car backfiring. But, you know, Fourth of July is coming up. <laughs> oh, <here laughs> and communities, of course, a lot of them have argued that they are, that this is just another example of those those neighborhoods being over-policed. And this time, you know, it, it's by, by some technology. On now to John Cadenzara, who's president of Chicago's Fraternal Order of Police. He's asking for his union to get the same 12 weeks of paid parental leave that Mayor Johnson gave Chicago public school teachers last week. Let's listen to a little bit of a video that he posted on Friday. Yesterday, the teachers were granted parental leave without bargaining. We certainly expect the same considerations for our membership. The call was placed to Mayor Johnson's team. Conversation was had and our position was well stated, and we look forward for a response very quickly here from Mayor Johnson's uh, administration about what they're going to do with uh, Lodge 7 members and the parental leave. I'll use this moment to read a comment from one of our friends on YouTube. J.P. Paula says, well, that demand sounds fair, but I'm wondering if the union will use it as an excuse to give Johnson a hard time as they backed Vallis and the CTU gave Lightfoot a hard time. Thoughts there, Brandis, and what kind of situation does this put our mayor in? Well, at first it sounds fair, right? Like, okay, why not, right? Why wouldn't you? But I I guess at the same time, I'm not sure that, like, you can necessarily look at the police contract and the teacher's contract and say whatever one gets, the other should get as well, right? And I'd have to be a lot more clear on um, some of the the unique, you know, clauses and bits of each contract before I could say, oh, well, they should probably get the same thing, too. The nature of their jobs are also also very different. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You've got a lot more women in the teacher's union than you do women in the the men's union. I mean, excuse me, the police. <laughs> Union, union, not the men's union. <laughs> Men, you guys I should unionize. Not women in the men's union. Because <laughs> it says men's union, clearly. Right, right there in the title, Brandis. <laughs> so I think it's a lot more complicated than just whatever one gets, the other one should get too. They're not twins. Um, but it, it does kind of raise the question, though, knowing our current mayor's history with the teachers union, um, and we have seen so much more, you know, unity between the mayor's office and the teachers union and CPS than I can recall seeing in the last eight to 10 years ever. Um, It does make me kind of think, well, what else is the teachers union going to get, right? Like contract negotiations should be coming up. I think their contract, they've got to start this summer or the fall, because I think the contract is up next next summer. So I'm I'm really curious about how that's going to go. Um, and certainly curious, it does put the mayor in a tough position, right? Because you've got Cotton Zero calling for this. Yeah. And if he has to come back and say hard no or whatever, or we do have to bargain over it when I didn't have to bargain with the teachers union, um, I'm kind of curious about how that's going to go down and how it's going to impact his relationship Might with the, not look the, good. the yeah. police union. And I want to be clear, Chicago police officers, they already have a, a generous sick pay policy. It allows them to take up to 365 days off every two years. 
So, I mean, how much of this do you think is political hmm. theater then? Oh, Natalie. it absolutely is. I mean, for someone to say, hey, parental leave, like, we don't have that great in this country. And the city has a policy, and now a CPS has this. So I, I, I think to the average Chicagoan, it sounds like, oh, well, what about police? But it is um, bigger than that, like Brenda said. It is. When yeah. I read that they get 365 days of sick leave, I was like, oh, wait. That's pretty okay. sweet. <laughs> so that's, it's not apples to apples. It's not at all. However, I do think that the mayor put himself in a position to be questioned because it is seen as a gift, even if it is good policy. I mean, our, I mean, I think we should have six months paid leave, you know, know, three months. How much do you get in Canada? A year. Right. (laughs) You know, three months is, is 12 weeks is not a lot of time with at all a new baby with a, so, a new human being started. yeah i mean we're gonna we're <laughs> gonna detour and, and all day the, talking about that that's that's what this hour is going to be and about my maternity leave was better than yours <laughs> right, <laughs> right on the next reset uh, yeah. <laughs> david, david david sitting this one out <laughs> but i, I do want to say one thing is that that Mayor Johnson sort of painted himself into a box because he defended the CTU concession by saying basically this is a moral issue that parents need this leave. It would be horrible to sit down and negotiate it. It's so obvious that it's that it's needed. So, well, Mm -hmm. how do you then turn around and tell the police that the same kind of high concept moral values don't apply to them? It's going to be difficult for him. Or any other union for that matter. And one interesting thing, though, is that we are seeing Catanzara actually went out of his way to say decent things about Mayor Johnson. And it's very interesting because FOP, of course, um, mm-hmm. backed his opponent in the election, Paul Vallis, who incidentally has gone to work for the Illinois Policy Institute, the very conservative organization. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it, it's uh, there, there are some olive branches being thrown out and here. And I, I have to say that it's, I mean, it's good for the the city overall to see this. And I saw today that the head of the um, Chicago Land Chamber of Commerce is like, oh, you know, Brandon Johnson, this is great. And it, I mean, not to go back to the election, but there's just a part of me that thinks that men are given more grace than women. Mm. And all this new honeymoon, oh, Brandon Johnson, they diametrically oppose so much of what he stands for. Mm. You know, the $800 million, like, you know, uh, scaling, you know, he may not be using defund police, but diverting or whatever term you want to use, all these things that are, you know, much more to the left than the FOP or the chamber. And it's like, mm, Brandon Johnson, like, he's, yeah, yeah. he's really trying. He's great. I'm like, this is, <laughs> is okay. Yeah. Now, gender may be an issue. And of course, Mayor yeah. Lightfoot, on her way out, she said that gender bias was a big factor in her problems and this whole notion of her being impossible to get along with, she pointed to specifically and said that that was a gender bias issue. Uh, that said, I think a little bit, another factor, Natalie, maybe he's not as scary as they thought he was going to be. Yeah. You know, he's backed off of some of his uh, more progressive positions, and he has, his posture is, hey, I'll talk to anybody, and I'll figure out ultimately where I'm going. And so maybe it's just a matter of, whoo, they're breathing a little it's, bit. I mean, he is an affable person. He, you know, that preacher's son, his, the way he talks, he does connect with people. So, yeah. you know, my comments aren't necessarily a diss on him, but just perceptions and I and it's not that I don't think that he doesn't deserve grace and it is new but it's just very I mean 
John, I'm gonna. I'm sorry. Kent and Zara. Yeah. I can't. We all. I mean, we everyone must have He is yeah. embarrassing. <laughs> you know, I mean, he is not known to be gracious to people and to see him. Um, I mean, I guess the other argument could be, you know, Brandon Johnson is this genie who is yeah. <laughs> who well, is entrancing all all of well, his before, political. Before I think, I'm gonna go on. with that one. That's more likely. <laughs> yeah. Before we move to another topic, I want to hear what Michael Marsh has to say here on YouTube. He's written, uh, the cops should get the same deal the teachers got. The teachers use the equality argument to get their deal. The same standard has to apply to the cops. We'll leave it there. Moving on to FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, sending more than $10.5 million to Chicago for shelter and support services. Now, this is coming as the city continues to struggle with finding housing and just basic services for thousands of migrants who we know have arrived here since last August. How much help does this funding bring to the city, though, Brandis? So who, who can say, right? Because I don't know exactly how much it costs, right, to care for this massive number of migrants. Um, I think the state is also getting um, close to $20 million from, uh, from FEMA to help with some, some basic, uh, basic needs and services for some of the migrants. Um, and I think the city has also just recently made a move for some of them who were being held at a Y um, in a northern suburb down to Daly College. And so... I, I, this is a heartbreaking situation, yeah. right? Because um, we're talking like thousands and thousands of people, humans, right? And, and parents with their, their kids and their babies. And obviously, I mean, it feels to me like a lot of this is sort of a short-term um, amount of support. Hopefully, the millions of dollars actually can make a difference. Um, but then what, right? Uh, there has to be a, a long-term plan, whatever that might look like, because obviously many of them are asylum seekers, Um but it's just heartbreaking, right? Because there's still a large number of people who are sleeping on on floors of police stations. Oh, yeah. I feel fairly certain that when I was driving by a police station on the southwest side yesterday, or actually west side, I was heading to Austin. Um, I saw like a number of tables, you know, set up out, outside of a police station, and I kind of guessed. I'm like, oh, mm, I wonder. I wonder if these are folks trying to help provi- provide some services and resources. Yeah. After days of delays, uh, some migrant families were moved from a closed YMCA in Westridge um, to Daly College earlier this week. This was to also make room for, for migrants who are staying at the police stations. I mean, the, the city, Natalie, does not have enough shelter for unhoused people as it begins, right? So how well do you think they're doing when it comes to addressing really two crises happening at the same time? It's a really tough situation. And so, you know, we can say that the city isn't planning well, isn't doing great, but I don't think that it's because of lack of compassion or or care this has turned into a political issue it's a money issue you've got groups saying what about us um i I think the long-term solutions will have to be very creative (laughs) innovative i don't know what that looks like but i'm you know we have population loss in the city we have abandoned or vacant buildings. I'm not saying those are mm-hmm. cheap to to redo, but... Well, here's a thought from J.P. Paulus, Natalie. He says, why aren't we talking with the suburbs to spread the responsibility, especially with those who have voted Democratic? This is J.P. on that, YouTube. That has come up. And, I mean, the, the, the thing is that this ends up becoming a NIMBY issue for a lot of not people. Not in my backyard. And I think New York tried to get the suburbs involved. Um, There has been talk about that here to look at this as a regional issue and not just a a city issue. But it takes people willing. I mean, I I think the compassion that we're seeing 
is among the volunteers, the people who are setting up, the people who are doing drives, the mutual aid. But those are the very short-term solutions. Um, But there are jobs that are available. There, I I think that there can be opportunity. And this isn't, I mean, these asylum seekers have gone through a hell that I don't think any of us can really imagine. For sure. Um, But I also think about how, in the city, particularly like on the on the southwest side, like when there was white flight that was that was there, or even migration, not just white flight. In those bungalow belt communities, you had a Latino population that came in and helped stabilize when you had, you know, older white residents dying off or moving somewhere else. And so I think that there is an immigrant story in this city where they can help revitalize and stabilize neighborhoods. And so I think that's like my big picture North Star Mm -hmm. guiding is that these asylum seekers can contribute to the good of Chicago, just like scores of immigrants have. And that does not have to be in conflict with African-American needs in the city. David, this week, Illinois became the first state to enact a ban on book bans. Tell yes, the book ban ban is uh, <laughs> is quite interesting. It happens against the context of an uh, uproar nationwide over one book in particular, Gender Queer, which is a very has been called pornographic in some places. A hundred school districts nationwide have mm-hmm. in thirty different states have have banned it, and also just a broader move in this kind of culture war period in our nation's history that we're dealing with. There have been 67 attempts in Illinois to ban books, in, in, according to the uh, American Library Association. Yeah, just last year. Right. And so this bill, which was sponsored by Alexei Janulius, who probably was surprised to learn when he became Secretary of State that he also is uh, Secretary of the Libraries in Illinois. And so he took the opportunity to uh, put this ban in place and to basically block uh, the state from giving putting any money in any library that uh, ban- that would ban a book. Yeah. Well, David threw out some of the numbers there, Natalie, but let, let's think about this for a second. Last year, 67 attempts to, to ban books just in Illinois. Nationwide, more than 1,200 attempts, right? That's the highest number that the association, uh, the American Library Association, has recorded since it began collecting this type of data more than two decades ago. What do you make of that? Yeah, so the American Library Association is based here in Chicago, right. and they have a wonderful executive director I know who's been on, Tracy Hall, who's yes. really been this beacon nationally um, talking about book bannings. Um, you know, we, we've done some reporting here, too, about suburban libraries. We've seen library boards get politicized. Mm-hmm. And part of it is, I mean, most of these parents have not read any of these books. That's what comes out. That is true. I think that's true locally. It's true nationally. They, The word see, has just been spreading. Right. They, they see a title on there, these groups, and these tend to be white parents who have a perception of America that they think is upended if there is a book about race <laughs> um, or, you know, giving a robust history or you know, and, and right. not just this, yeah, you know, George Washington was great mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, yeah. but they're they're not reading and they're all, and and book bans have 
been around for a long time. I mean, Judy Bloom is one of the most well known. Yes. I've read Judy Bloom. My daughter's going to start reading Judy Bloom. Mm-hmm. She has weathered all of this. Um, so it. This isn't new. It's it's not new. It is ramped up, and I think that there are you know different issues around race and uh, gender and sexual identity that that are pop- popping up. But Illinois, and then we're going to talk about abortion. But Illinois is seen as a midwestern abortion haven, mm-hmm. and it is now a book haven too because the states surrounding Illinois, you know, they're they're using terms like defund the library, and there's this. I mean, it's a joke, but not really that if libraries didn't exist, there's no way that they would get approved in today's society. Mm. A place with free books wow. and resources. <laughs> what are you, you spending my tax, tax dollars on? Yeah. Well, I mean, let, let's go there uh, and, and shift gears, Brandis. We're, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, right? Um, in the last year. Patients seeking both medication and procedure abortions, it actually rose 54%. And those who are needing financial and travel help, that more than doubled that number. So this is according to new data from Planned Parenthood of Illinois. What do you think these trends tell us about the effect that that Dobbs decision is having on this region? That it's clearly having an effect, right? And, yeah. you know, as Natalie just said, if, you know, if Illinois has become sort of an abortion haven, that it is obvious that folks from surrounding states where uh, where abortion has been uh, ruled out or outlawed since the Dobbs decision a year ago, that those folks are still uh, that they're for those who can make it right, that they are coming to Illinois for it. Um, because I think uh, Planned Parenthood of Illinois also says that, you know, before the Dobbs decision, only about 7 percent of of patients who came to Illinois for an abortion um, came from out of state. Now it's up to 25 percent. And they're also saying that uh, the Dobbs decision has is forcing folks to delay care, right? Because mm-hmm. if you are in need of an abortion and you cannot get one in your home state, mm-hmm. it's probably going to take you a little bit longer to figure out where you can go because you can't go somewhere closer anymore, how you're going to get there, how much it's going to cost, how you're going to get all that money. Mm-hmm. It takes a few minutes to pull all of those resources together if you can um, before you can make it to uh, to a, n- a neighboring state to get the abortion that, that you're in need of. So I think I think the, the point that Planned Parenthood of Illinois is making is that it is clearly having an impact. It's it's pushing people past, you know, that 16 week gestation period. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it sounds like Planned Parenthood and they're using whatever resources they have to help folks. You know, maybe it's booking a hotel night um, or it's eating while you're while you're in state for, for your procedure. And it's not new. I mean, these numbers are in the year post row. Mm-hmm. But in 2020, I did a story that looked at Illinois public health data showing the uptrend of out-of-state abortions here. And even if abortion wasn't outlawed, the restrictions were so severe. The Chicago Abortion Fund and people does, were already coming here. Yeah, Chicago Abortion Fund does the work that Brandis is talking about. Pay, you know, gives people money, lodging if they need it. And in that story, this was just such an example of show, don't tell. They're telling me what people are saying when they call I got to sit in on calls, and there was a woman who called from Iowa and said, I want to get an abortion, and abortion is illegal in Iowa. And it wasn't, but the restrictions were so tough Mm -hmm. that that was the mindset. So this has been an orchestrated trajectory that got us to Dobbs last year and where we are now. And and while I have you, Natalie, just, just talk us through real brief what kind of measures 
have been passed to protect abortion and reproductive access since in this last year, since Roe v. Wade was overturned. So some people might have thought, okay, well, in 2019, Illinois passed the Reproductive Act guaranteeing abortion as a right for Illinoisans. So we're good. And that's why people get to come here. But Democratic lawmakers have said that is not enough because the fear has been, will there be persecution from other states? So some of the laws that have passed include protecting out-of-state patients, um, protecting out-of-state providers. Um, Now people can sue crisis pregnancy centers that if if they are using fraud, they are known for – making women feel like these are abortion clinics, but in fact, they are not. Uh, College campuses have to have at least one kiosk with birth control or some type of, you know, reproductive Mm -hmm. um, medication. And you, the other, one of the other big pieces is you can't use technology to get license plates data than to give to other states who might want to prosecute. Yeah. You know, uh, Republican lawmakers have filed dozens of anti-abortion rights bills over multiple legislative sessions, David. Many of them are duplicates of each other, and and none have made it out of the chambers. But Republicans say that they're filing these bills to let their base know that they're at least trying. Is that right? There's a lot of signaling that's going on here uh, by the Republican Party. And you'll remember that Governor Pritzker, after the Dobbs decision, made a point of saying Illinois is going to be this beacon of hope. And the list that Natalie just listed really does establish that there was some seriousness to this and there's an ongoing effort. The the license plate thing, for example, was just signed into law last week Yeah, um, and it was promoted by Alexi Janulius, the secretary of state who runs uh, the, the licensing, et cetera. He's so, busy. Yeah, he's been a busy person, very ambitious, uh, still relatively young politician. Uh, but but that's that's what's setting Illinois apart uh, as a mainly blue state. Um, that said, we're not that blue a state from top to bottom. We're a blue state up here in the northern part of the state, mm-hmm. and we're quite red in the lower in the southern part of the state. And the pushback to some of this has been quite significant in the southern part of the state. Yeah. They don't want to be a beacon of hope for uh, reproductive rights. Now, in the story that just keeps on giving, the Chicago Bears have yet another suitor for their new stadium, North Suburban Waukegan. That means Waukegan is now up against Naperville, Arlington Heights, and I guess Chicago, right? (laughs) (laughs) If they're still in the running. Chicagoans hope. How big of a shot does Waukegan have, Brandis? (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I mean, I think everybody, I don't want to say everybody's necessarily a long shot, but I don't really know what the Bears are going to do, right? Like, they made it look and sound like, all right, everybody pull up stakes. We're going to Arlington Heights. It's happening. We bought this racetrack. We're demolishing it. And then they learn about the taxes and they're like, oh, well, that's going to be a problem. So it's not our singular (laughs) focus anymore. What else can we do? Um, and so Naperville's like, ooh, pick me. And Waukegan's like, ooh, pick me. And, yeah. Uh, last night, Parashut's <laughs> ran a package me. on some other potential possibilities in Chicago. Uh, you know, full disclosure, he's a big Bears fan. And I think he's got season tickets. Um, <laughs> and so I don't know. Obviously, um, we know that the president of the Bears and uh, Mayor Johnson had a phone call last week. And in that statement they released, all of us were like, well, that tells us nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... 
I don't know. I guess Waukegan's got a shot, right? Because they're not far from the training facility. And they're like, look at all, you know, we've got these large parcels of land and, you know, access to the train. And I'm like, oh, you know, that's not a bad idea, right? You can just take the Metra to, <laughs> to the game, right? You've got something going there. Well, yeah. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, David, how important will the location of the new stadium be for, for the team and for its fans? When professional sports teams move, they try to move closer to their main market. And so what's their uh, moving, main market? Um, Northwest suburban people or maybe Naperville type people. Okay. Waukegan would be a little bit of a reach. But you see, for example, with the New England Patriots, they're in Foxborough, which is about as far outside of Boston as uh, as Waukegan is out of Chicago. But mm-hmm. I, I just think these are classic stocking horses. The Bears have made such a major investment out in Arlington Heights and are moving forward with demolition, as Brandis noted. So to me, it's either they somehow figure out a way to stay in Chicago, which they have not wanted to do basically mm-hmm. since they signed the Soldier Field lease, or in my mind, I think the the smart one money would be on this, them still winding up in Arlington Heights. It'll be interesting. I think that taxpayers are a lot more savvy than they would have been maybe 20 years ago mm-hmm. on these issues. So, you know, this would not play well to give a sweetheart deal to the Bears in Chicago to say, oh, tax break, here you can have all this stuff. And suburbanites are like, wait, hold up. <laughs> you know, the, We don't want all this traffic yeah, and trouble. Or, or just the tax, you know, they, your leadership, the Arlington Heights leadership may be saying one thing, but the people are worried about the price tag, too. And we went through a period in this country where taxpayers were funding large stadiums as infrastructure was crumbling around them. And so I think that there are tougher questions now that are that are being asked and that um, elected officials just can't give away all these breaks for a billion-dollar franchise. So you're not going out to Waukegan to see the Bears You know what? As a <laughs> Let the Bears Is that go. What you're saying? I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> I love go. Chicago, but— let them go and, you know, see what suburb wants to, to pick that up for and them. That has to be the attitude of the civic leaders in these various communities. It can't be lay out the welcome mat and give away the tax base. It has to be a business deal just like, and you know, any other business deal. We're seeing this up in Evanston with the, you know, the Ryan Northwestern Field. wanting mm-hmm. to expand the True. football stadium and, and or actually – Make it smaller, but have events. And and the same thing. It's like, these are business deals. Don't get sucked into any of the, oh, gosh, it would be nice to have the Bears in town. So this week, NASCAR reps and city officials, they held a a joint press meeting. You're making a face, Brandis. I said NASCAR, and you're triggered. Uh, so they, they held <laughs> NASCAR is triggering. <laughs> it's triggering. Uh, so they held a joint press meeting. Uh, it was an update on the street race and music festival that we are all excited about next month, right? Right? Yeah. Uh, parking restrictions and street closers have already taken effect, but the, the biggest interruptions we know are the ones that are scheduled to begin later in June. So what is your strategy around the table for avoiding traffic and congestion, and, and who's leaving the city? Like take, me. Take the CTA. <laughs> take public transportation. It's a good idea. Yes. I, I mean. <laughs> don't drive. Don't drive. Yeah. Or so I live in Evanston. I'm probably just going to stay in Evanston just because between, um, you know, the the closures that are happening on Lakeshore Drive and, and sort of that whole reroute. I think the museum campuses, like all the museums are doing something different. Some of them are abbreviating their hours. Mm-hmm. Some of them are closing entirely. And one of them's like. What NASCAR race? We're, we'll be open. Don't worry. Come on over. I don't remember which is which and who's doing what. You can find it on our website. Um, 
<laughs> but and then, of course, all of this is happening at the same time that the Kennedy is under uh, that major construction. And it's not like they can just pull up those stakes as well and say, you know, we're going to reopen these two lanes because we want to ease the traffic that's happening on the mm-hmm. east side of town. Um, and so I think that is my biggest, you know, sort of grudge against this is the wreck on traffic. And you can't really get through the city um, in any reasonable amount of time because of all those closures. Additionally, you know, a lot of folks are complaining about the uh, the impact on the park, right? Because now, like, you, you can't access Grant Park for a good bit of the summer um, because it's going to be closed down for so many events. Mm-hmm. It'd be one thing if it were the taste, right? And if it's something that, like, all of us can go downtown for. Right. But I have no interest in going downtown for NASCAR. I don't think Chicago's really a NASCAR city. And so I'm really curious about how, when all of this is over... You know, I juxtapose this with the casino, which right now seems to be on track, right? Going to be a whole lot of money coming out of that. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot can go out saying, I did it. Um, and I juxtapose that with NASCAR. And everybody's like, she did this. <laughs> <laughs> I, my family is ready to turn up. I got family coming in town okay, for NASCAR. NASCAR. Well, Hit I have a, a cousin who works for GM. And so some other cousins mm-hmm. are coming in town. NASCAR seems to want to broaden their demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, traffic is Awful. Like I, this Southside mom put her kid in a Northside camp today. Never again. Why'd you do that? I know. <laughs> but today I was like, we're taking the L. And I was like, just take public transportation. We have, I mean, for all of its faults, and I've written about the stinky sure CTA. <laughs> but I think. I'm just excited about all the things happening in July. I got Anita Baker tickets. I got Drake tickets. <laughs> yes. Do you have Beyonce will... tickets? Girl, now you know I do not <laughs> like her. Wow. We'll um, talk about that off the air. I want to talk about I don't. That. I just <laughs> outed myself. I said that. I my friends. Um, but wow. there's so much excitement in other festivals that I'm just ready for summer. I mean, it's 55 degrees out. I am underdressed yeah. and cold. <laughs> I'm ready Chicago for July summer. to be here and all these fun things. And maybe it's inconvenient. I mean, it, it has taken me 90 minutes to get from Lincoln Park to Avalon Park. I can't go through Jackson yeah. Park anymore. Like, it's bad. Take public transportation. You can get yeah. to all of these things, well, all these this festivals. Well, brought to you by CTA. I know. <laughs> Our our friends on YouTube and Facebook chiming in, Old and in the Way says, the NASCAR event could be one and done. We'll see. And James Anderson says, NASCAR is a great opportunity to stress the importance and necessity of public transit. So James and Natalie are... Kind of on the but same by page. one and done, they mean three years and done, right? Because it's a three-year commitment. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, and, I didn't know it was three um, years. Thanks for reminding me. One contract. <laughs> to, one listen to done. Natalie, though, it reminds you what a great place this is in the city in the summer. And why did we need a stock car race to showcase Chicago for the rest of the country? I, I think the whole premise of this contract was faulty. And when you look at the economic terms compared to what some of the other like Lollapalooza or some of the other festivals get, yeah. uh, this may ultimately be looked at back on much like we do the uh, parking meter fiasco. I don't think okay. dutiful work was done in making sure the city got the best deal out of this as it could. Well, we're almost out of time, but I, I do have to mention that Monday is Juneteenth, right? And, and this is actually going to be the third year that the day is recognized as a federal holiday. And uh, the city is going to be hosting events at Malcolm X College today and tomorrow. Uh, there's going to be live performances, panel discussions, and a lot more. Does anyone have holiday plans this weekend? <laughs> we may go dusabo is doing a day long um commemoration on monday okay uh so we'll see i mean it's a day of 
rest. <laughs> also, I feel like There's I'm going to rest from my ancestors. So mm-hmm. I'm, o- <laughs> I'm okay just staying at home and sitting in the in the backyard. Yeah. Um, but in West Woodlawn, Naomi Davis of Blacks and Greens is doing something at the Mabel T- um, Till Mobley House. So okay. There's no shortage. Um, so many things happening yeah. this weekend. The libraries yeah. are doing a lot, too. Chicago Public Libraries are doing a lot, and they've got a lot of kid-friendly uh, events and activities as well. Brandis, what are you doing? I'm relaxing on Monday. I'm I'm working on Monday. Womp, womp. <laughs> I mean, there will be a one-hour episode of Reset. Obviously, but beyond I'll be listening that, to that. I am yeah. going to relax. I, I'll be working on Monday, honestly. Um, I think my hope is, you know, maybe I, there's, I, you know, we all go to the work, right? So I'm trying to think, well, what is the, the Juneteenth story there won't that, be that any we want to tell? <laughs> <laughs> there won't be any traffic, right. so I've got that going for me. <laughs> so I actually will be working on Monday. I always think about, like, you know, what are the ways I can, especially, like, for my kids, one of whom is very young and doesn't quite get it yet. Um, and Evanston and Skokie are both doing, because that's where I live, they're both yeah. doing um, some Juneteenth events over the weekend. Sweet. And so I'll see if you I You working on Monday? Say. Not working. We're shut down on Monday. I've got a couple calls. But, you know, let's just talk about Juneteenth for a little bit. Well, we it's only have so, about 10 seconds. It's so great that we're recognizing Juneteenth <laughs> as a holiday and people are getting the day off. Well and, said. And, That's yeah. perfect, David. Yeah. That's it for the Weekly just News leave it Recap. At that. <laughs> My thanks to David Grising, president of the Better Government Association, WTTW co anchor and correspondent Brandis Friedman, and WBEZ editor Natalie Moore. Have a great weekend, folks. This episode of Reset was produced by Stephanie Kim, and it was edited by Maha Ahmed. Get the recap and all the great coverage we do here on Reset by subscribing to our podcast. And when you do, be sure to leave us a rating and review. That'll do it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Have a great weekend.